0: The Apostle Paul would become highly irritated anytime someone tried to infiltrate a church with some teaching that would belittle or demean the preeminence of Christ. For Paul, Jesus was all anyone needed to know, and any attempt to add something to that would meet with Paul's ire. We would do well to have this same sort of awareness as different teachings compete for first place in the minds of people, trying to draw them away from the truth that is in Jesus. We read a section from Colossians this morning. Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians to combat a heresy known as Gnosticism. It was beginning to creep into the churches, which had more of a a Greek-type population rather than a Jewish background. Judaism was the problem um, with the Galatian churches, where teachers were trying to bring in uh, bring, bring in teachings about the law and bring people under uh, the old Jewish law. And Paul was combating that in Galatians because these people felt that that was necessary in order to either be saved or maintain or prove your salvation. But Gnosticism was a completely different form of heresy, running at the same time, but it was a, a prominent heretical movement of the second century uh, is when it gained its biggest following and influence in the church. So it was actually of pre-Christian origin and got into the Christian churches and began to uh, flourish. Gnostic doctrine taught that the world was created by a lesser divinity, um, that they called the Demiurge. And that Christ, Jesus, was an emissary of this remote, far-removed supreme being. They believed that only an esoteric knowledge of Jesus could enable anyone to be saved. Now, it's that esoteric aspect that uh, is the foundation of almost every cult. Esoteric is a word that's not in our common language, and I can see some of you sitting there wondering, is he going to help us? Yes. A good synonym for esoteric might be mysterious. The definition of esoteric is intended for or likely to be understood by only a small number of people with a specialized knowledge or interest. And if you can begin to grasp that, you can see why it appeals to people and draws them into a cult, because we know something nobody else does. That's essentially what goes on. We know something that very few people know, and that makes us the select of the elect. We're special. Like for me, for instance, Einstein's theories are very esoteric. They're mysterious to me, okay? I don't understand them. However, in reference to Christianity, the esoteric knowledge of Christ taught by the Gnostics was and still is dangerous to the faith. I say still is because I've encountered this form of specialized knowledge, certain teachings, etc. throughout my almost 60 years of serving the Lord. So Paul wrote this letter, which has been preserved for us by the Holy Spirit, to give a clear picture of who Christ is, what he did, and how our salvation is brought about. Now, this is such a powerful section of Scripture that we had this morning in the lesson, that I'm going to do something different in my ordinary style of teaching. I'm going to go through this thing, each verse, and bring out something rather than jump all over. Now we're going to do some jumping, but mainly going to go through the entire section and highlight the things that Paul leaves with us. So, we'll begin in Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 where it says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, I spoke of this the last time we were together and I tried to show you that our salvation from beginning to end is all of God. It's done by God alone. We have nothing to do with it. And it says that here. He delivered us and he transferred us. He did it. I'm not going to belabor that point throughout, although it's going to show up again in this section because it is an important aspect of salvation. Essentially, it says here that we did not change kingdom allegiance on our own. We, were, we had pledged allegiance to one kingdom, and God turned us around and we are pledging allegiance to a different kingdom. And then he explains what redemption means. In whom we have redemption, that is, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption is the forgiveness of sins. We've been bought back, bought out of that realm of darkness. Our sins have been forgiven, and you'll not see anywhere as we go through this section any meaning, any mention of the necessity of repentance for that to occur. It's a done deal. He goes on to say in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul begins here to combat one of the basic tenets of the Gnostic heresy, which is that Jesus is just a lesser uh, being, a lesser they use the word emanation, a lesser emanation of God. No! Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now we see, to the, we see this stated more forcibly by the writer of the letter to the Hebrews where he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. <clears throat> now, I love the way the different translations bring out this thought, so we're going to do that. The King James says that he's the express image of his person. The New Living Translation says that he expresses the very character of God. The New International Version says, He's the exact representation of his being. The Christian Standard Bible says he's the exact expression of his nature. The New English Translation says he's the representation of his essence. And the Revised Standard says that he bears the very stamp of his nature. I love that. Just There's no getting away from the fact that Jesus is God. Jesus is. Reveals to us all that God is. So Jesus shows us everything we need to know about God. If our understanding of God is not seen in Jesus, we are looking at a faulty image, faulty concept. Recall that Jesus said to Philip, Philip said, show us the Father and it's enough. Jesus said, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. Can't get much plainer than that. So as we continue with Paul's exaltation of Jesus, he says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now the Gnostic believed that because of the holiness and purity of God, there was no way he could have direct contact with this world. Because this world isn't the holiest thing we've ever seen. They taught that only spiritual things were good and all material things were bad. But here Paul reveals their lie and says that absolutely everything was created by God through Jesus. Everything. Both the invisible or spiritual and the visible are natural. So as we continue, it says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now Gnosticism taught that since the world was created apart from God's direct involvement, that after it was created, he simply let go of any concern for it. We're just out here on our own. And that's what Paul is attacking here by saying that all things are held together in Christ. Now, it's difficult to imagine what this world would be like, what the chaos would be if God had simply let it go. Self-destruction would have occurred a long time ago. And now Paul begins to add a different angle to the reality of Christ. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We see here that Jesus is the head of the body and the body is called the church. He is also the firstborn from the dead. Now, if you have some basic Bible knowledge, that may cause a question. Because this phrase often concerns causes concern for people because they're thinking of at least two instances where resurrection has occurred, okay? One was when, you may not have read this story before, but it's a fascinating story. One was when a dead man was thrown in the grave of Elijah, and and there was so much life left in those bones that the dead man jumped up out of the grave and ran away. But the second story is the story of Lazarus. We all know the story of Lazarus, how he was raised from the dead. So how can it be that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead? Well, very simple. Those two guys that are mentioned died again. They were raised to life, but they died again. Jesus is still alive. Jesus still lives. He's the same now, yesterday, today, and forever. So that's how he's the firstborn from the dead because he still is. And then he goes on, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is why Christ is preeminent in all things. Because all the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. Now, each of us here today each of those listening, watching online, we carry aspects of God. No question about that. But we do not carry all the fullness of the deity. So as we stated earlier, everything we can know about God is revealed in Jesus. And if it's not in Him, then it's a faulty concept. And he goes on to say, and through Him, that is Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now I firmly believe that if you would take just this verse, Colossians 1.20, and make it your meditation for a few days. Meditating on its meaning, and the ramifications of it, probably much of your theology would be challenged. It is through the work of Jesus when he was on earth that God reconciled all things to himself. All things. Now we've been taught a backward application of the cross. And this verse challenges that. We've been told that because of the cross, we now have the opportunity to become reconciled with God. Now look at that verse closely. He reconciled to himself. It's been done. We're taught that we need to do this because God is mad at us. But he will quit being angry if we will admit our sin and accept Jesus. That is not what is stated here and in other verses. The reconciliation is a done deal. Peace has been declared. God is not mad at you. He's not mad at anybody else. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Now, I'm just going to stop on that verse. Those of you who have been listening to me for a while, know that I have taught that unless God initiates the action, there's nothing we can do towards our understanding of Him in any way. This verse is a prime example of that for me. I taught for years about our being enemies of God based on this verse because that's what it appeared to say. But a careful reading of the verse shows that we were only alienated in our minds. We thought that God was mad at us. We thought we were enemies of God. And that's because that's the way we were taught. We only thought that we were separated from God, but we weren't. We never have been. Once again, it's due to a faulty understanding of just this single verse of Scripture and maybe one other. In Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2, it says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, doesn't that sound like that God has turned? Oh, isn't it also possible that this is just from my perspective? That because of my sin, I think that God can't hear me? Because of my sin, I think that God can't see me? We've taken it to mean that very thing, that God removes himself from us due to our sin. I'm saying that's not true. Consider the first sin ever committed. Okay, Your mind should immediately go to Adam and Eve. When they ate of the forbidden fruit, what happened? God called out for him, and he said, Adam replied, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Who was hiding? God or Adam? It was Adam. Adam did the hiding, not God. God came looking for Adam. Now, we don't need to run through the question, well, couldn't he find him? Couldn't he see him? All that kind of stuff. It's the story. He comes looking for us because we have separated our minds by our faulty thinking. Uh, i reminded, he goes after the one that is lost. Je- the, Jesus gave the parable. He'll leave the ninety and nine who are already there to go looking for the one who's not there. But that's not the end of the story. Like the commercial says, wait, there's more. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, there's that word reconcile again. And again, it is what God has done for us and to us without any effort on our part. This is explained more fully and plainly in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, he says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then he explains what that ministry of reconciliation is. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I have a question. When it says that he's not counting their trespasses against them, why do we tell people they need to admit that they're a sinner? God's not counting that. If you remember in 1 Corinthians 13 in the love chapter, it said one of the aspects of love is that it keeps no record of wrong. God is love, not keeping a record of wrong. Now, what I've been declaring to you today cannot be stated more plainly, I don't think, than what Paul does here in this verse. It is all from God through Christ. We have been reconciled to God because he does not count our sin against us as we continue to think about sin and being a sinner, we've learned in our study on Thursdays that that's where the mind is focused, so guess what we do? We continue to sin because that's where our mind is going. All that remains is for you to accept that reconciliation by saying, thank you. Let go of your fear of hell. Let go of your fear of displeasing the Father. Except the fact that there is nothing you can do to make God any happier with you. Any more than he already is. Just the way that you are. Doesn't mean you're not going to improve. Doesn't mean you're not going to grow. Doesn't mean you're not going to change. But he's right there beside you as you are. Because he loves you. And there's nothing more that can be said. God is love. He loves you.